I knew it was a well, because you could see the water bubbling up from the bottom of it. But it was a lot bigger than most wells, like a very big round bath with marble steps going down into it. The water was as clear as anything, and I thought if I could get in there and bathe, it would ease the pain in my leg. But the lion told me I must undress first. Mind you, I don't know if he said any words out loud or not. I was just going to say that I couldn't undress because I hadn't any clothes on, when I suddenly thought that dragons are snaky sorts of things, and snakes can cast their skins. Oh, of course, thought I. That's what the lion means. So I started scratching myself, and my scales began coming off all over the place, and then I scratched a little deeper. And instead of just scales coming off here and there, my whole skin started peeling off beautifully, like it does after an illness, or as if I was a banana. In a minute or two, I just stepped out of it. I could see it lying there beside me, looking rather nasty. It was a most lovely feeling, so I started to go down into the well for my bathe. But just as I was going to put my feet into the water, I looked down and saw that they were all hard and rough and wrinkled and scaly, just as they had been before. Oh, that's all right, said I. It only means I had another smaller suit on underneath the first one, and I'll have to get out of it, too. So I scratched and tore again, and this underskin peeled off beautifully, and out I stepped and left it lying beside the other one, and went down to the well for my bathe. Well, exactly the same thing happened again, and I thought to myself, oh dear, however many skins have I got to take off? For I was longing to bathe my leg, so I scratched away for the third time, and got off a third skin just like the two others, and stepped out of it. But as soon as I looked at myself in the water, I knew it had been no good. Then the lion said, but I don't know if it spoke, You will have to let me undress you. I was afraid of his claws, I can tell you, but I was pretty nearly desperate now, so I just lay flat down on my back and let him do it. The very first tear he made was so deep that I thought it had gone right into my heart, and when he began pulling the skin off, it hurt worse than anything I've ever felt. The only thing that made me able to bear it was just the pleasure of feeling the stuff peel off. You know, if, if you've ever plucked the scab off a sore place, it hurts like bilio, but it is fun to see it coming away. I know exactly what you mean, said Edmund. Well, he peeled the beastly stuff right off, just as I thought I'd done it myself the other three times, only they hadn't hurt, and there it was, lying on the grass, only ever so much thicker and darker and more knobbly looking than the others had been. And there was I, as smooth and soft as a peeled switch, and smaller than I had been. Then he caught hold of me. I didn't like that much, for I was very tender underneath, now that I would no skin on, and threw me into the water. It smarted like anything, but only for a moment. After that, it became perfectly delicious. And as soon as I started swimming and splashing, I found that all the pain had gone from my arm. And then I saw why. I'd turned into a boy again. You'd think me simply phony if I told you how I felt about my own arms. I know they've no muscle and are pretty moldy compared with Caspian's, but I was so glad to see them. After a bit, the lion took me out and dressed me. Dressed you with his paws? Well, I don't exactly remember that bit, but he did somehow or other in new clothes, the same I've got on now, as a matter of fact. And then suddenly I was back here, which is what makes me think it must have been a dream. No, it wasn't a dream, said Edmund. I was pointing out last time that the Christian life is simply a process of having your natural self changed into a Christ self. Hello and welcome back to the Inklings Variety Hour where fans and scholars of C.S. Lewis, J.R.R. Tolkien, Charles Williams, and others discuss their works and lives. I'm Chris Pipkin, occasional skinner of dragons, and uh, this is our second episode of The Voyage of the Dawn Treader where I have with me Eric Geddes, a collector and bibliophile out in frosty Arizona. How are you doing, Eric? Oh, I'm doing well. Good, good, good. Well... I'm really happy again to be continuing with season three with Voyage of the Dawn Treader and excited to have you back on the show, Eric. 
If you, if you all remember, Eric was on for the Christmas extravaganza bonus episode and also for our first Voyage of the Dawn Treader episode. And he rejoins me again today as we continue to sail our bark towards the Crystal Sea. I guess you could say Crystal Sea, right? It's got lilies at a certain point, but, uh, but for a while it's fairly crystal-like. So what, what we're going to do is make this the final episode of Voyage of the Dawn Treader. And we're going to hit as many high points as we can of Voyage of the Dawn Treader during this conversation. But listeners, if there are any that we leave out and you're like, ah, I really wanted to hear like more of the podcast on this moment of the Voyage of the Dawn Treader or this moment of Voyage of the Dawn Treader, please do feel free to contact me at inklingsvarietyhour at gmail.com and feel free to come on the show and talk about your favorite parts of Voyage of the Dawn Treader because there's so much. This is for many people, their favorite Narnia book. Every chapter, I feel like I could spend an entire hour on. So so please let me know if there's more that you would like to talk about. So a bit of background for Voyage of the Dawn Treader before we get going. It was published in 1952, dedicated to Jeffrey Barfield, Owen Barfield's son. It's the third book in Lewis's Narnia series. If anybody tells you differently, just abruptly end the conversation and walk away. This is the this is the first tale in which only two of the Pevensies, Edmund and Lucy, play a part because Peter and Susan have become, as we found out at the end of Prince Caspian, too old to visit Narnia. It's also the first tale in which you get a non-Pevensi earthling, human, son of Adam, coming into Narnia from the outside world, the Pevensies awful cousin Eustace. The Voyage of the Dawn Treader is a departure from the other books, those other books being so far, again... Lion with Wardrobe and Prince Caspian for a number of reasons. Less time has passed in Narnia than in the previous books. It's only been a few years in Caspian's time, whereas when you went from the Lion with the Wardrobe to Prince Caspian, it had been centuries and centuries. There's also no single bad guy. There's no Miraz. There's no Jadis the White Witch. Instead, the kids are kind of their own enemies, and Caspian is as well. The only one who's closer to... Uh, you're a good guy with no no shadowy or bad qualities. Seems to be reaper cheap, but yeah, no no great evil baddie. Instead, it's episodic. From chapter to chapter, they face a different threat. Now, what we've just read is the episode that dramatizes this the best, right? That you know they fa- they do face external threats, but they also face internal threats, right? And that's that's the adventure of Eustace at Dragon Island, where. By putting on an enchanted piece of treasure, Eustace becomes a dragon himself. And we've just read really what's the most famous part of this book, where Eustace is undragoned, as Edmonds puts it. When he's undragoned, that, that's really, for a lot of people, the best salvation image from this book, or at least the best sanctification image, the the moment when Eustace allows Aslan to change him instead of trying to change himself. Now, this is significant because Eustace has been, in Edmund's words, a record stinker up until this point. Not a nice kid, not a nice kid at all. And he's had something to say about every good thing and bad thing that's happened to them on this trip and doesn't really seem to appreciate anything. Finally, he runs off by himself on an island and everybody ends up looking for him while he falls asleep in a cave with dragon's treasure on his arm, thinking about how he'll be able to have power over everybody as a result of stealing this treasure. And lo and behold, wakes up as a dragon, suddenly realizes, oh no, I actually kind of like people and want to be around people and does his dragony best to help them all out. And after some time, they begin to realize, well, shoot, if we keep moving, if we if we sail on and, and complete the quest, what are we going to do with Eustace? He can't just fly forever up, you know, up above the ship, but there's not really room for him on the ship. And finally, of course, Edmund sees Eustace in Eustace form again, but he seems quite different from even how he was as a boy, to say nothing of how he was as a dragon when he tells this story that we read at the top. So, Eric, what, what resonates with you about, about this portrayal of Eustace's undragoning? Does this work, do you think, as a better image for how God saves us than the image of 
Edmund being ransomed from the White Witch? Is it more like complimentary? How does this compare with the way Edmund is saved in the first book? Well, I definitely think that this is a pretty clear analogy for baptism, which, of course, a baptism, you go down one way and you come up another way spiritually. But I think this is, like, kids can totally understand this. And I think people who weren't even exposed to Christianity should be able to, because it's external. The change is external. So you're going from a greedy boy into a dragon, and then you you try and change back, but that never works if you do it by yourself. But you need, kind of in the same way, you need him to ransom you from your own stupid decisions or whatever. Yeah, so that's what kind of sticks out to me. Yeah, absolutely. And that reminder about baptism, I think that's so key that we are changed in water and that the yeah. water has this symbolic value. I mean, it's interesting. This is the clearest allusion to baptism in all of the Narnia books, at least that I can think of. And what's interesting is that it, it comes in a book about sailing and exploring water. I have no idea what to make of that, but there's a way in which in Eustace's case, this baptism is about cleansing, right? And a kind of cleansing change that he needs to take off his clothes or take off his skin in order to have that change be affected and kind of comes to the end of himself. And at the same time, of course, you have the characters in Narnia all coming to the end of the world and coming to a place where their own their own efforts can't really get them any further. And it's brought them some way, but they have to be taken the rest of the way into Aslan's country entirely. And Aslan's instrumental in, in both cases. A lot of people... I think quite rightly emphasize the connection between this and baptism and this and sanctification and this and the fact that we cannot be good enough, that God needs to work in us to restore the true human image that we've corrupted through baptism. What's what's the, you know, buried with him in baptism, raised again in newness of life in some traditions. I don't know that would have been what was said in Lewis's tradition. This idea of baptism being regenerative and, and being a kind of death, right, that we're dying to our own attempts to make ourselves into good people, but rather surrendering. And then that even though it hurts to surrender. I think also, though, up until this point, A lot of this has been about Eustace's education, that he's a singularly miseducated young man, that his head has been filled with all the wrong sort of books and goofy progressive ideas that mostly have to do with judging other people and finding fault with them for not being advanced enough or modern enough or whatever else, and knowing a lot of facts but having very little wisdom. And being prone to just complain a lot when he finds himself on an adventure. And uh, it's interesting that you have this kind of re-education of Eustace through adventure and through even hardship that happens on adventure. And I wonder if part of what that sort of an education does is it allows Eustace not to be safe so that... So that he can find himself in these situations where he has to encounter his real self and run up against the fact that he is close to irredeemable, right? And and it's at that moment that he knows that he needs some kind of intervention. I don't want to allegorize it too much. I mean, he happens to be turned into a dragon, and that's not something that occurs in the ordinary course of education, but that dragonishness. Even Lewis makes the connection between that and greed, right? Sleeping on a dragon's horde, having dragonish thoughts in his mind, he'd become a dragon himself. So yeah, this seems to be the major kind of moment in Eustace's re-education that allows the rest of the stuff to find purchase in him so that he gets made wiser by it. But at the same time, even the stuff leading up to this where he had to experience hardship, where it was hard for him and it was unpleasant for him, it seems to have at least brought him to this point, right? Where he's realized kind of what a thoroughly awful person he is. 
So it's kind of negative education at first and then positive education in order to undo the poor education he's received from his parents and other people in Cambridge. But that may be that may be putting too much on it. Was he was Lewis the chair of medieval literature at this point at Cambridge? So nineteen fifty-four, one year after this book was published. Lewis was awarded the chair in medieval and renaissance literature at Cambridge and they founded that post with him in mind so while while he's busy being an Oxfordian (laughs) and insulting Cambridge they're thinking well maybe we should try to bring that Lewis guy over here you gotta make him turn his satirical wit on Oxford that's right that's right I mean they you know they're they're more Cambridge and Please, if anybody here has gone to either Oxford or Cambridge, I don't know what I'm talking about, but this is what I think is true anyway. Oxford is the the more conservative school. Cambridge was a little more experimental. And I guess maybe Cambridge didn't mind having a lay theologian as their chair of medieval and Renaissance literature in the same way that stodgy old Oxford might have. But yeah, that's kind of fun. I'm sure there's more written about that somewhere and the, these kind of eternal wars that, that go on between the two universities that I'm I'm just not privy to. But yeah, that's pretty awesome. All right. So Lewis, or Lewis, Eustace is, uh, is undragoned. He's free to go. And from that point on, really, the arc of Eustace's character, not much else happens until the next book. Yeah. When it's when it's him and Jill exploring the, you know, the underground realm, the silver chair. But after that point, you have various lessons being learned by various characters, different people being awful in in different ways. And occasionally in some chapters, everyone's fine and it's just an external threat that they have to overcome. So I thought I'd just go through some of these questions and Eric, you could sound off on, on any that strike you. This is a book again that starts with a good deal of satire, right? Lewis really sort of finds his voice in this book. And I'd argue it's partly because he gets to start just completely satirizing the heck out of Eustace Clarence Scrub. And uh, there are a lot of funny moments in this book. After the point with the with the undragoning of Eustace, can you think of any moments that, that you found humorous? Well, it's kind of funny and kind of weird when you don't know what's going on, but the duffel punch... Just that they have one foot and they're bouncing up and down and like the chief says something and then everybody else is like, oh yeah, yeah, that's that's perfectly yeah. right. Yeah, it's funny and it's also really throws you off, right? As as you're reading, in the same way that it throws them off, you have no idea what these invisible things are or where these voices are coming from or whatever else. And then the way that they speak is just bizarre. They come to an island. They're surrounded with these voices and... There are these impressions that are getting made in the sand and in the ground. They realize they have these invisible people surrounding them. And the invisible people say that there's an evil magician living in the house on the island and that they had to slave away for the magician and he turned them ugly when they were beautiful before, just as good looking as you could imagine. And they sent someone of their own number to go and find the magician's book and recite a spell to make them invisible. And now they're tired of being invisible and they want Lucy to go back up into the magician's house and say the spell to make hidden things visible. Their dynamic is there's one big man, so to speak, who's sort of in charge, the chief, Right, and every time he says anything, they all agree. Oh, right, you are, chief. Right, you are. So they're they're asking, well, how do we know that you could even threaten us? We can't see you, so we don't know that you really pose a threat. And then they throw a spear and hit a tree, and suddenly they can see the spear. That's a spear, that is," said the chief voice. "That it is, chief. That is," said the others. "You couldn't have put it better. It came from my hand," the chief voice continued. They got visible when they leave us. 
So every time he says anything, really, like, that's right, that's right. Couldn't have said it better. Oh, you're on a roll today, too. Again, here, Lewis seems to be satirizing something, right? Like, I, I'm assuming it's the tendency of people who are anti-hierarchical when they reject their ruler to just appoint a new person and agree with everything that the new person comes up with. But it seems to be sort of a, okay, well, if you toss out your rightful ruler, Koryakin, right, and you won't listen to him, that impulse inside of you to be told what to do by someone is going to be strong still, especially because you've never been educated into being able to use any sort of discernment yourself to figure things out. But yeah, the way the way he paints them is pretty humorous, for sure. They end up, by the way, the, the Duffelpuds end up being revealed as one-legged dwarfs who can jump all over the place. And the first look Lucy has, the first the first view she has of them is at noontime when they're all sleeping. And the way that they sleep is they lie down on their backs and they shade themselves with their giant foot, right? And Lucy says, oh, they look just like mushrooms. So Lewis is getting that from a pretty long existing medieval and renaissance legend that stretches all the way back to the greeks about the strange and monstrous peoples that they believed existed at the borders of the world and there's this one type of person called the sheopods which just means like shade foot because that's exactly what they would do according to starting with starting with pliny there are all kinds of different monstrous races there are dog heads there are people who don't have heads but have their faces in their chest there are people with really long ears and they wrap themselves with their ears and then there are these uh, sheopods the shade foots who have really really big feet and if you look up s-c-i-a-p-o-d you can find some like renaissance and medieval illustrations of these guys but but basically you know, this was transmitted to Latin writers, transmitted to medieval writers, and it was just kind of known that this was one of the strange races of people that were at the edge of the world. And so Lewis is taking this thing that would have been known by Renaissance and medieval scholars and transplanting it into the book. And the origin story of the Sheopods in The Voyage of the Don Treader is that Yes, they are still at the edge of things, right? At the edge of the world, right? So they'd still be at the edge of maps, just like they're on the edge of old maps of the earth that the medievals would make and, and the Renaissance folks would make. But they were apparently a group of very common dwarves, according to Koryakin, right? And uh, Koryakin, for whatever reason, decided that it would be much cooler if they all had one leg. And so, <laughs> so he gave them all... He made, I guess, their legs join and their foot join into one foot. So they get around by jumping. And uh, yeah, it's it's interesting. I'm not sure that Karaikin's totally blameless here because it seems, you know, if they didn't really want to be changed into one-legged dwarves, maybe that wasn't the kindest thing in the world. Well, it's some kind of discipline, right? Yeah. I, I don't know, like, it's probably not the best, but as, like, as a father, I'm sure you have to, even if you don't want to, like, discipline your kids if they're, if they're happy enough. Yeah, that's true. I, I don't take away one of their legs. No, <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I mean, that, that seems to be, you're absolutely right. Kariakin seems to play a kind of Prospero role, right, in The Tempest. You have Prospero, who's the rightful Duke of Milan, who's been exiled to this island wrongly in the case of the Tempest, but he's in charge of these two strange creatures, right? One is Ariel, who's a spirit, and one is Caliban, who's a, a kind of a savage, bestial, half-human, half-something else, right? And uh, there have been lots of lots of renditions of the play afterwards, right? That, that have kind of questioned this setup and questioned whether Prospero should be in charge of, of Caliban. But, uh, but it, it seems like in Shakespeare's mind, it was very much, well, Caliban only thinks about his stomach and his sex drive. 
so of course it's good for Prospero who's educated, right? To be forcing Caliban to carry water and chop wood for him and stuff like that, because this is helping Caliban to become something higher, right? And there are all kinds of creepy and tricky analogies that can be made from that place that people have made and not entirely unwarranted, you know, that they've kind of found fault with Prospero, but, but Karaikin seems to be a Prospero figure, right? They're both magicians and they're both in charge of people who don't seem to be very good at looking after themselves. Maybe it's like, well... People, I guess not in Narnia, but in our world, of course, people are higher than animals. Mm -hmm. But you could even maybe say, like, it's an Adam job. Like, God gave the animals to Adam to name and take care of. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Because they can't, they couldn't, for whatever reason, take care of themselves. Yeah, and I think, I think part of the way that Lewis viewed it at least in the problem of pain, was that humans kind of mediated grace to the animal kingdom um, because they're the image of God. That's how God orders this sort of physical kingdom is through the people he created as his representatives. Yeah. And so you have a similar thing going on with Karaikin, even though, as we learn later from Ramandu, Karaikin used to be a star and did something bad. And we're not told what. But uh, part of his punishment is to be put there on that island and made to govern this group of dwarves called the Duffers, right? And of course, they they start getting the part of the reason they're called the Duffelpuds is because at first they're called monopods, which is another name in the you know in the sort of monstrous races lore for the Shepods, just meaning one-footed, right? And they get the name like all bungled up and start calling themselves Duffelpuds. The other parallel to this is Circe in the Odyssey. You have lots of lots of Odyssey parallels here, but what happens with Circe is when Odysseus and his men land on this island, and this island too has a house that's quiet with smoke coming up from it. His men get out of the boat. They go into the house, and Circe greets them and says, oh, so you know, so glad you could make it. Please rest, eat some food. And they start eating, you know, gobbling up the food and she turns them all into pigs. And then Odysseus has to come and save them. And she ends up being, you know, friendly because he forces her to, to change his men back as well. Right. So there again, you have this motif, a single enchanter living on an Island, changing the form of things. Right. I think, I think Kraken's a little bit more like, like Prospero probably, uh, especially because he has a book and Prospero has a book too. But uh, yeah, it's a, it's a fascinating few chapters. And again, I'm not sure what I think of the uh, turning the duffers into one-legged duffel puds, but you know, it's also like where Lewis is doing satire and then it slips back into a kind of child story where of course children would prefer the dwarves to be jumping around on one leg, you know, but it kind of lets Kraken off the hook uh, in a weird way. What are the parts in the Voice of the Entreter that filled you with the most wonder? The part that really like signals to me that okay, we're we're not in Narnia anymore. We're like getting closer to heaven. Is first Ramandu and his daughter. And just and then we find out he's a star. And it's like, like stars are actually people here. And the line that sticks out to me, it's done really, really well in the Focus on the Family version, but Eustace says, in our world, stars a huge ball of flaming gas, and Andrew just says, even in your world, my son, that is not what a star is, but what it is made of. Mm -hmm. And I just 
that really hit me and it still hits me like yeah i guess they're made of gas and everything but of course really makes them into people but they're not just physical right yeah yeah absolutely yeah that's one of the that's one of the great paths and again like this is why this is part of the reason i think this is about you know this book and the whole narnia series really is about correcting problems in education i've definitely encountered this with often very bright students and and they just want to like take the stuff apart and see how it works but the tendency then is to be reductive about it and say well all this is is this and and lewis of course goes on and on about this in the abolition of man where he says to see through everything is the same as to be blind i think in some ways this is one place where Eustace is being retrained about how to think about things, right? Because he's very apt in, in terms of the sciences. He understands more about science than like most of the other people do, most of the other provincies even, even though he's younger than them. But there's there's this tendency to conflate what something is with its physical properties, right? As as though there's other, as though there's nothing more to something than that. Which of course Lewis knows very well that if that's the case, then even that observation, like nothing can actually be said to be true. If all we are is physical matter, then who's to say anything about that physical matter aligns with any accurate vision of the world? So that reductiveness chips away at itself. It kind of saws off the branch that it's sitting on like a cartoon character. So this, I think, is an important moment in Eustace's education. And then he goes further. And this is what education is meant to do, to bring you further and further to the point where you're not just knowing about or guessing about the end of all things, right? But you are joyfully participating in the end of all things and knowing it not just in the sense of knowing about it, but 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 embracing it, right? And 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 being at that at at that place where you come into contact with the beautiful and ultimately with with Aslan. But I love that moment too, where he talks about how even in your world that's not what a star is. This is something that Lewis and Tolkien and Williams and Barfield, all in their various different ways, were banging on about all the time, right? Which is the essence of something. It's a tautology to simply say a tree is a tree is a tree, a rock is a rock is a rock. It doesn't doesn't tell you anything about that thing, right? And and if all you do is say, you know, it, a tree a, a tree is made up of these fibers and, and and this thing and this thing well yeah you're you're finding stuff out about a tree but is it the deepest truth about a tree does it really tell someone what a tree is or does myth about trees tell someone what a tree is right and which of those views of trees is going to lead to them actually being preserved right yeah. is it is it the view where like this is something that is precious that that we get from folklore, that we got from myth, that we have in stories, the trees in George MacDonald's Fantasties. You know, there's there's so much that's been passed on through story. But if you don't read any of the right books, you're going to end up thinking, oh, trees just like inert matter that I could do what I want with, right? Yeah. I, I think there was one point a while ago when you guys did the Prince Caspian episode I think you said something like the trees have been here longer and they are not participating in worship, but they are part of glorifying God. Gerard Manley Hopkins talks about this this principle that everything is always actively glorifying God by being what it is. And humans miss out on that because we're fallen, but there, there's a kind of praise that's being offered up at all times by all things in creation and obviously if we take the reductive view that eustace does we can't really access that because it's just it's just matter and it's not that like we think that trees are necessarily sentient in the way that we are right they're not but they are creatures because they're created to to give god praise same with stars and 
it's kind of I when you were talking there, I just thought of like Madeline Wingo or Wind in the Door or mm-hmm. something like that. That's that's very much like the climax of that book is participate in the dance of creation, all creation, by being what you are. <laughs> yeah, the Lango books are great for that. You know, it's it's not that like I don't think we should figure out what a star is made of or, yeah. or what a tree is made of, or, or even that we shouldn't use parts of nature to help us live healthier and oh, yeah. longer and, and, and all of that stuff. But there should yeah. be a kind of gratitude and there shouldn't be a, a sense that either utility is everything, right? Oh, what can I use this for? So I can yeah. advance my own designs w- without like a thought of gratitude nor should there be simply a sense of, oh, well, all this is, is this, right? A kind yeah. of simplif- simplification, because that robs us of the primary ingredient of, of joy and of a healthy, happy life, which is, which is wonder and, and, and gratitude. And if we don't have those things, and if, if our heart is dead to the things around us that God's given us, then we're, well, you know, just, just like... People say in Ramandu's island, we're, we're like beasts, right? So you have that second sleeper. And apparently the three sleepers around the table, the reason they fell asleep is because one of them reached for the knife that was used to kill Aslan. That's that's there at the end of the world on, on Aslan's table because they got in a quarrel about whether to keep going and go all the way to the world's end or whether to go back to sail back to Narnia. And you can hear remnants of that quarrel when they when they go up to them and try and trying to shake them out of the enchanted sleep. It must be an enchanted sleep, said Lucy. I felt the moment we landed on this island that it was full of magic. Oh, do you think we have perhaps come here to break it? We can try, said Caspian, and began shaking the nearest of the three sleepers. For a moment, everyone thought he was going to be successful if the man breathed hard and muttered, I'll go eastward no more. So that's the one who wants to turn back, right? But he sank back almost at once into a yet deeper sleep than before. That is, his heavy head sagged a few inches lower toward the table, and all efforts to rouse him again were useless. With the second, it was much the same. Weren't born to live like animals. Get to the east while you have a chance. Lands beyond the sun. And sank down. So that's the second, right? Who is saying we're not born to live like animals, right? And and you get this sort of motif throughout this, right? Where you have this separation between the people who whose god is their stomach, who serve their appetites, and the people who want to go forward and seek adventure, right? The people who are alive to the wonder of the world and who want to and who desire it and desire to know more of it. And then, of course, the third one says, mustard, please, and slept hard, right? So, so then there's the one who, who, it's not even that he wants to go home to Narnia, he just wants to eat, right? Again and again, you get some version of this speech of, I don't know about you all, but I, I'm going forward, right? And this guy yeah. saying we weren't meant to live like beasts, because that's a difference. You know, that moment where you have the, you know, even, even in your world, that's not what a star is, only what it's made of, right? That that clarifying rebuke to materialism. You have that sort of be part of the conflict throughout, really from really from the time that Reepicheep wants to go to Dark Island because no one's been there, and everyone else is like, no, Reepicheep, we really don't want to go any further. But what manner of use would it be plowing through that blackness? Asked Drinian. And often you have Drinian and Rince and Rinalf voicing this point of view of the common sailors who who like yeah. mostly want to be safe, which you can't really blame them for. It's their job, right? To, to be a sailor. Use, replied Reepicheep. Use, Captain. If by use you mean filling our bellies or our purses, I confess it will be no use at all. So far as I know, we did not set sail to look for things useful, but to seek honor and adventure. And here is as great an adventure as ever I heard of. And here, if we turn back, no little impeachment of all our honors. 
Several of the sailors said things under their breath that sounded like, Honor be blowed. But Caspian said, Oh, bother you, Reaper Cheap. Almost wish we'd left you at home. All right. If you put it that way, I suppose we shall have to go on. Unless Lucy would rather not. And in this case, Reaper Cheap is right, right? Like, it's yeah. good that they go into the blackness because they rescue one of oh, Caspian's man. men. Afterwards, he wants to continue to explore the blackness. And they say, no, let's let's not. So we have row, row, bellowed Caspian. This is after they start like getting the nightmares, right? Row, row, bellowed Caspian. Pull for all our lives. There's a head right, Drinian. You can say what you like, Reaper Cheap. There are some things no man can face because only Reaper Cheap remained, un remained unmoved, right? Your Majesty, Your Majesty, he said. Are you going to tolerate this mutiny, this poltroonery? This is panic. This is a rout. And then Caspian says the bit I just read. There are some things no man can face. It is then my good fortune not to be a man, replied Reaper Cheap with a very stiff bow, right? So... He's, yeah. he's all about the adventure, right? And in one case, he's totally right. And in another case, he's completely wrong. They they needed yeah. to get out of that darkness. Um, mm -hmm. So fear does tell us something, but it's a matter of having an ordered enough soul that you can hear fear when you should hear it and ignore it at other times when it's time to plow forward and when it's time to do the thing you're supposed to do. Um, mm -hmm. And in the same way, you have a similar speech given by Caspian to his sailors when they're all kind of like, oh, yeah, we kind of like to go back to Narnia. And then gradually they have to think of, okay, what kind of rhetoric can we use to get them to keep sailing, right? And they come up with, well, you seem to be under the misapprehension that we even want you to come with us. Really, this is, this is a very select group of people sailing with us to the end of the world. You'll carry the name Don Treader and your descendants will too for the rest of narnian history and please feel free to stay here if you want to and in fact i can't even promise we're going to take all of you and that seems to kind of like turn them around now here's the weird thing lewis is getting this i think a lot of it anyway from the poem ulysses by alfred lord tennyson so this is this is a poem put into the mouth of ulysses uh, odysseus after his voyages and he's talking to his men, which like in the Odyssey, of course, his men are all dead by this point. But in oh, other legends, they're not. And he's talking oh. about he's talking about how he doesn't want to stay there on the island, which which like you can tell, like that's also shows that Tennyson is not quoting from the Odyssey because all Odysseus wanted was to get back to the island in the Odyssey. And he didn't even want to go to Troy in the first place in the Odyssey. But he's tired and he's restless and he's talking to these men. And he's saying, Much have I seen and known, cities of men and manners, climates, councils, governments, myself not least, but honored of them all, and drunk delight of battle with my peers, far on the ringing plains of windy Troy. I am a part of all that I have met, yet all experience is an arch where through gleams that untraveled world, whose margin fades forever and forever when I move. How dull it is to pause, to make an end, to rust unburnished, not to shine in use, as though to breathe were life. Life piled on life were all too little, and of one to me little remains. But every hour is saved from that eternal silence, something more, a bringer of new things. And vile it were for some three sons to store and hoard myself, and this gray spirit yearning in desire to follow knowledge like a sinking star beyond the utmost bound of human thought. And then he talks about, uh, okay, I'm making Telemachus, my son, the ruler of this island, so that so that I can I can go on, right? This is my son, mine own Telemachus, to whom I leave the scepter in the isle, well loved of me discerning to fulfill this labor by slow prudence to make mild a rugged people and through soft degrees subdue them to the useful and the good. Sounds a little bit like Karaikin and the Duffel Puds, right? Most, and then he's talking to his men again. There lies the port, the vessel puffs her sail. There gloom the dark broad seas, my mariners, souls that have toiled and wrought and fought with me, that ever with a frolic welcome took the thunder in the sunshine and opposed free hearts, free foreheads. You and I are old. Old age hath yet his honor and his toil. Death closes all, but something ere the end, some work of noble note may yet be done. 
not unbecoming men that strove with gods. The lights begin to twinkle from the rocks. The long day wanes. The slow moon climbs. The deep moans round with many voices. Come, my friends, tis not too late to seek a newer world. Push off, and sitting well in order, smite the sounding furrows, for my purpose holds to sail beyond the sunset and the baths of all the western stars until I die. It may be that the gulfs will wash us down. It may be we shall touch the happy isles and see the great Achilles, whom we knew. Though much is taken, much abides. And though we are not now that strength which in old days moved earth and heaven, that which we are, we are. One equal temper of heroic hearts, made weak by time and fate, but strong in will to strive, to seek, to find, and not to yield. So that's a good chunk of Ulysses by Tennyson. You can kind of see some of the places that sort of jive with the the Voyage of the Dawn Treader. Yeah, that it sounds very much to me like the Reepicheek thing of I will sail east and then I will paddle east and then I will sink with my nose to the same place. Yeah, yeah, it's it's like inspiring stuff, right? It's it makes you want to like jump up and cheer and sort of be like, yeah, I'm going to go sailing. You know, you kind of want to shout hurrah and go out and explore and never, never stop. Right. Never cease from exploration. Right. And it seems to me, at least from, you know, what Lewis is saying here or the view of exploration that Lewis is giving here, that seems to be a poem that's inspiring him. Right. But here's the thing. Lewis would have known exactly where Tennyson's poem came from. It's not from the Odyssey. It's from Dante. And it's from, because Dante didn't have access to the Odyssey. Dante had access to a bunch of legends about Odysseus, about Ulysses, which is what Dante called him. And Tennyson's poem is taken almost entirely from, see, Dante and Virgil are going down into hell. And they're in one of the lower rungs. It's the rung of the false counselors. And they know that what that what Ulysses has done is taken a ship of men. Actually, here, I'll just read it. So this is this is Ulysses in hell saying why he was put there in the realm of the false counselors. When I sailed away from Circe, who beguiled me to stay more than a year near Gaeta before Aeneas gave that place a name. Neither my fondness for my son, nor pity for my old father, nor the love I owed Penelope, which would have gladdened her, was able to to defeat in me the longing I had to gain experience of the world and of the vices and the worth of men. Therefore, I set out on the open sea with but one ship and that small company of those who never had deserted me. I saw as far as Spain, far as Morocco, along both shores. I saw Sardinia, and and saw the other islands, that sea bays. And I and my companions were already old and slow when we approached the narrows where Hercules set up his boundary stones. The boundary of the Mediterranean, where it empties out into into the Atlantic, you know, which like the the legend, yeah, the legend was you weren't supposed to go past there, right? where Hercules set up his boundary stones that men might heed and never reach beyond. Upon my right, I had gone past Seville in Spain, and on the left, already past Ceuta in in Africa. Brothers, I said, O you, who having crossed a hundred thousand dangers, reach the west to this brief waking, time that is still left unto your senses, you must not deny experience of that which lies beyond the sun and of the world that is unpeopled. Consider well the seed that gave you birth. You were not made to live your lives as brutes, but to be followers of worth and knowledge. I spurred my comrades with this brief address to make the journey with such eagerness that I could hardly then have held them back. And having turned our stern toward morning, we made wings out of our oars in a wild flight and always gained upon our left-hand side. At night, I now could see the other pole and all its stars, the star of ours had fallen and never rose above the plain of the ocean. Five times the light beneath the moon had been rekindled, and as many times was spent since that hard passage faced our first attempt, when there before us rose a mountain, dark because of distance, and it seemed to me the highest mountain 
I had ever seen. And by the way, this is purgatory that he's seeing, which only, which Dante will see, but Dante has to go through hell to get there and God guides him on his quest. This is Ulysses out of sheer impudence, passing the limits that God has placed on mankind and going to the other side of the world where living people are not supposed to voyage and seeing purgatory, Mount Purgatory, where only spirits are supposed to be, right? And we were glad, but this soon turned to sorrow. For out of that new land, a whirlwind rose and hammered at our ship against her bow. Three times it turned around with all the waters. And at the fourth, she lifted up the stern so that our prow plunged deep and pleased an other, capital O other in, in this translation. So pleased God, right? God sent the whirlwind to, to drown them until the sea again closed over us. And that's the end of that canto where, where Dante through Virgil is, is talking to Ulysses, right? And it's, and it's very obviously the, the passage that Tennyson is taking his super inspiring poem Ulysses from, right? Yeah. But the meanings couldn't be more different because Dante is saying, stay in your place, oh man, you know, you know, that you, that you shouldn't be going beyond this fixed place. And, and Tennyson is saying, screw that. I'm going to go beyond this fixed place and explore. Right. So it's interesting that Lewis is taking that same language. I think he very obviously is drawing on Ulysses speech, putting it in Reepicheep's mouth, in the mouth of the second sleeper and, and also to an extent in Caspian. But I think it really does raise an important question, right? Which is so much of this is about adventure and the glory of adventure. When is adventure for adventure's sake good? And when is it going too far? When when does adventure become and and when does when does bravery become foolhardiness? I pretty much say it's it's good up until you want to explore a land where nightmares come true. Yeah, yeah. And then, and then after that, it's like eh, no, just well. It's it's funny because I mean, Reepicheep is the noblest character in the in the whole book. It's funny though, because Lewis does deal with this question just a little bit, right? Because t- towards the end, Caspian and King Edmund have a kind of falling out because Caspian is taken with the same sort of love of, of adventure that Reepicheep is taken with, right? And he's not allowed to, uh, like, in, in this case, it's more the Dante version of Ulysses, right? Because, you know, just like Dante says, neither love that I owed my son nor love that I owed my wife or father could constrain me to stay on the island, right? But I wanted to keep going. And that's the wrong choice. And for Caspian too, he has obligations, and, and yeah, well, he's he's the king. He can't yeah. just abandon everything. Yeah, which I think is a good way to settle the question. Reepicheep isn't a king, but he does have responsibility as leader of the mice. Yeah, I mean, he the succession is provided for. The leader of the mice position goes on to Peepicheep, right after <laughs> Reepicheep. But so maybe it's just that Caspian didn't have any kids yet. I don't know, but uh, yeah, it's 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 interesting. I, I don't know. Do we ever get a sense of how old Reepicheep is? I don't know. I mean... Because Caspian is just like 15, 16 at this point, right? Yeah. So it makes sense that he would want to go with Reepicheep, but it would also make sense of, no, you have to be... You're in a position of responsibility. Yeah. And you have to grow up. Yeah. Right? And yeah. like... I don't know. Yeah, well, I think, too, that I don't th- that's a great point, which, by the way, raises a side question, which is, like, do talking animals in Narnia have lifespans that are more like humans' lifespans or more like animals' lifespans? But we can come back to that some other time, because I think the question you raised is is more important, which is, yeah, does age have something to do with this, right? Because when you are a certain age, when you are around the age that Caspian is, you are your appetite for adventure is going to be pretty naturally wedded so that it's less noble for you to want to launch out into the deep 
than it is for maybe someone that it would take more bravery to to do that now on the other hand that older someone more usually does have obligations right that prevents them from like joining a war for example or you know exploring or, or whatever else right so in a lot of those cases it is the right decision for them not to abandon their their obligations right but i think there's something to that though in that when you're young it takes a lot less holiness or sanctification to to want to do one of these like great glorious adventurous things right yeah. then not that you shouldn't do it because i think to a certain extent like that's not such a terrible thing for a young person to do but that it's more meaningful when it's bilbo baggins doing it who's comfortably middle-aged and really likes this hobbit hole bother burgling and everything to do with this yeah yeah exactly yeah. i wish i was in my hobbit hole with the kettle just beginning to sing or something like that yeah I love, by the way, that the last, the last word in The Hobbit is tobacco jar. It's just like, you know, reinforcing this idea of the of the comforts of home. Yeah. But uh, yeah, yeah. So I mean, this is an interesting book in terms of kind of testing and testing what the limits of adventure are, right? Because part of what Eustace needs is he needs to be that kind of a young man, right? He needs yeah. to be more like Reaper Cheap whether Reepicheep is a young mouse or an old mouse or what, right? He he needs to be in places where he's unsafe or where he's uncomfortable or whatever else because he was not made to live like beasts, right? He he wasn't made to just fill his belly, right? And 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 live for his stomach or his physical comforts or whatever else, right? Part of what makes adventure grand is the physical discomfort because the physical discomfort causes you to look beyond physical needs and feel the keen wind of eternity blowing through the hair of your soul, you know, or, or whatever. Right. Yeah. Like, yeah, that you get past that, you get past the need to be comfortable. And that of course is a lesson that a lot of the sailors have a good deal of difficulty learning. Right. And even you see this divide as well between the sailors and Reepicheep in the last sea where Lucy is looking at all these underwater people and she's just intrigued by them, right? It's this entire other society that, that exists underwater that she can see. And they have their own version of like hunting and hawking and yeah. knights and, and shepherds That's and shepherdesses and all these things. So cool. But also of course they're all naked. And oh. when, Drinian, I think it's Drinian, sees them and sees Lucy looking at them. He's like, turn around quickly, quickly. Pretend like you didn't see anything because some of these sailors, like they've been at sea for a long time and they're going to think the wrong thing when they see, you know, these naked sea women, right? And they're going to be diving into the sea. And, you know, <laughs> and, and again, it's like this, this Lucy doesn't even think of that because she's so given to seeing things correctly or clearly but they're still controlled by their appetites like the duffel puds like you know materialism says we should be right and uh, like eustace probably would end up being if, if it were, wasn't for this but but then they hear a big splash and reaper chief has jumped in and of course drinian at once thinks oh he's gone to you know see these to see these people i think they think he's like going to fight them or something like that i don't know yeah. but like they of course are assuming things about his motives and when he when he comes out of the water he's just deeply moved by the experience right he hasn't been looking at the naked fish or the naked mer people right he's been yeah. he's been tasting the water and the water's like drinkable light he, so suddenly who speaks of that yeah isn't who that awesome i think dante I think that's from Dante's Paradiso as well. But they're using like at that point, right? When they're at that point in the in the ocean and they've come that far, some of these things begin to collapse because they're not hungry anymore. So they're not they're not simply serving their bellies anymore, right? But they are they're drinking light. They're drinking this this water that is in Reepicheep's words sweet right? Non-salty, but it also has this taste that's like nothing you've ever tasted and they don't need to eat and they don't need to drink anything else. 
and it it purifies them and makes them young what'd you say they don't sleep either yeah yeah so there's a there's a kind of they suddenly come to a place where the physical is being taken up into the spiritual world that minds are made for right but that spiritual world is being expressed physically you know in 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 the same way everything that they see is a manifestation of of the beauty of God, right? Everything that they see, and and obviously that's always true, right? But things are things are more other, right? And things are more holy as they get closer to the world's end. Which, by the way, in Paradiso, when Dante is approaching the throne of God, he he passes through a bunch of spheres of planets to get there, and finally comes to the end of all time and space right so it's like you think of these like concentric rings right and he comes to the very to the very to the very end right to the uh, to the fixed stars right which is how they viewed the stars that were not planets they viewed them as fixed in in relation to each other and just kind of rotating around the the earth and uh, and once you pass that you go beyond time and space and you come to the place where you can experience where you can actually see god right but it's but it's beyond you know your ability to see earthly things and you've obviously been purged and purified and everything else that you can see god similar to the way they're being changed by the by the drinkable light right and everything kind of inverts at that point because again space is getting weird and it's almost as if it turns inside out and so suddenly god is at the center of everything rather than the earth and the physical world is on the outside right the voyage of the land treader puts me in mind of that as well because even though they're not like rising into the air past the spheres of the planets what they are doing is they're getting to the edge of this round flat world and and they're going to pass this final barrier and finally come and have this experience of of aslan who's been guiding them all along Right, and this is where he lives. And at first, they see him as a lamb, and he turns he turns into Aslan the lion, and uh, tells Lucy and Edmund that they can't come back to Narnia. Doesn't say anything about. I think he doesn't say anything about whether Eustace can come or not. Uh, and is Eustace never to come back here either? So said Lucy, child, said Aslan. Do you really need to know that? So again, you know, he's having fish for breakfast right which is which is very not dantean right dante he transcends all that but but lewis brings back kind of the incarnatory aspect of of jesus right and and, and that he's eating fish after the resurrection and and he asks the same question to lucy that jesus asks to peter what is that to you you follow me when peter's asking jesus about what about john is john gonna die too because he just said I was going to. <laughs> this book is just so chock full of allusion after allusion after allusion to all kinds of different literature. We haven't even talked about the Imram, which is a an Irish story about sailing to the end of the world. And I don't think we have time to. But yeah, he's just drawing on so much literature, weaving it into an excellent story and doing it in such a seemingly simple way right i mean these are these are stories for children that are easy for children to understand but but it's so dense and so rich that you can come back to it again and again but uh, that's probably where we need to end it tonight but uh, let's see try to think of a final goofy thing that we could talk about the the contrast between bilbo and reba cheap struck me as as funny but i don't think we could just like ad hoc script out a conversation between Bilbo and Reap Cheap. Well, I do think the final, this has nothing to do with that, but the final line of the book is pretty funny because that's, everybody's talking about like, Eustace is so much better, so much better and his mom's like, oh, he's commonplace and tiresome and it's so stupid tendencies. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I love this. I love the ending. Only two more things need be told. One is that Caspian and his men all came safely back to Ramandu's island, and the three lords woke from their sleep. Caspian married Ramandu's daughter, and they all reached Narnia in the end, and she became a great queen, 
and the mother and grandmother of great kings. The other is that back in our own world, everyone soon started saying how Eustace had improved and how you'd never know him for the same boy. Everyone except Aunt Alberta, who said he had become very commonplace and tiresome, and it must have been the influence of those Pevensey children. Yeah, that's a great ending. All right. Well, Eric, thank you so much for joining me as we explore the very ends of the world of Narnia. And listeners, if there's anything we missed that you'd really still like to talk talk about, feel free to email us and let us know. But barring that, we'll end our exploration of the Voyage of the Non-Treader here. And uh, yeah, thank you all again for listening. And next time we will be talking about Michael Enda's book, The Never-Ending Story. We'll talk a little bit about the movie too. Eric, thank you again. Listeners, thank you again. And I will see you next time. All blessed encounter full of joy and scheduled on a decent plan. With here an addict of Tolkien, there a Charles Williams fan.